All right, so we're in Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah for a long, long time. Um, we're, we're getting really close to the end. So we have, I think, two more Sundays in Isaiah. That's it. You guys have made it. And I've made it too. We've all, we've done this. Uh, so I'm, we're going to take three chapters today, which is a lot, a little bit more than we, we typically bite off in a Sunday, but um, we got, you know, we got to go. We got to keep moving here. And uh, so we're going to take a few chapters um, and then we've got uh, 65 and 66 and we'll take one, one of those a week for the next couple of weeks because they're kind of, they're long and they got a lot, lot to say. So we'll take those by themselves. Um, for today, as we get into this, um, here's where we need to, to start turning our attention. Uh, here's where we need to start looking as we get into this text to understand it. Um, we need to look at our hearts. Um, that's really what this is addressing. It's addressing the, the issue of the heart. Now, I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood in your body. I'm, I'm talking about who you are, fundamentally who you are. That's what the Bible means when it uses the word heart. Um, it, it's talking about the, the core of our personhood, the core of what makes us do what we do. And, and here's the thing about the human heart. Um, the, the core of our personhood, this is what we need to see. We need to understand that we are wired for love and acceptance. But there's a problem with our hearts, okay? So we're wired to have a longing to be loved and, and accepted and approved of. That's why we chase people's approval so, so much. That's why we're so desperate to be good at what we do so that people can look at us and go, wow, how impressive. That's why, that's what motivates everything we do as human beings. And we can pretend that that's not true. And, and honestly, I think the people who say, I don't care about people's opinion, they're lying to you or they're trying to impress you by not being impressed by you, right? That's, that is fundamentally who we are as people. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be approved of. And, and the reason for that is because every human heart was made by God to be loved by God. We were wired, we're hardwired that way. And St. Augustine, who is a, he's been dead for a long time. He lived in the 300s uh, AD, so that's a long time ago. Um, he said in his book, um, The Confessions of St. Augustine, that's what we call it. Um, it was basically his, his testimony on how he came to faith in Jesus. It's a classic. You should read it at some point in your life. Um, but there's a famous quote in there. You may have heard it. Um, maybe not. Maybe this will be the first time you hear it. But here's what he says. He says, my heart was restless until it found its rest in you. And he's talking about Jesus. My heart was restless until it found its rest in you. So, so we, we're wired for this, uh, this rest in God, this comfort in his love. And, and our hearts are restless until they f- get to a place where we realize we're actually okay in Jesus. In Jesus, we're okay, right? We, until we get there, we're going to be just chasing everything else. But here's the thing. Um, when, when we say that we long to be accepted and loved, we can go in one of two directions. And, and one is very unhealthy and unbiblical and not, and not really a healthy road to walk. Um, and that's this road. It's essentially saying, I am perfect just the way I am. That's just fundamentally not true. 
We say it. We hear it all the time. Um, It's a way for us to bandage a wound that only God can heal. But to say, I I long to be loved and accepted, so here's what I'll do. I'll just say it and make it true that I'm perfect the way I am. Um, That is not a healthy place. It's not a place that's going to drive you to the true rest for your soul. Uh, but we hear it constantly. It's everywhere in our music, in our movies, in our media. It's everywhere. It's the theology of our modern world. In, in fact, there's a, we'll, we'll call her a theologian by the name of Lady Gaga. I've never quoted Lady Gaga from the pulpit before. <laughs> and I hope I never do again. But here we go. You've all heard this song, and I'm not going to sing it because she sings much better than me. But, but here's, here's the words, and it's really weird when you read a word. Like, when you hear the song, it, like, kind of get excited about it. But then when you read it, and you're like, that's really dumb. Here we go. Um, it says, there's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you, he being God in this, that's why I call her a theologian, he made you perfect, babe. I'm not going to say that again. <laughs> so hold your head up, girl. And you'll go far to me. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Y'all heard that song. I'm, I got to do it again tonight too. But, I, but either way, I'm never saying it again after that. Um, here's the thing. That's a catchy song. It's fine. Whatever. If that's your favorite song in the whole world, fine. Just don't believe what it's saying. Because God doesn't make mistakes, but guess what? We do. We do. And we have a, a brokenness in us because of our sin and our rebellion and our, and, and our hostility towards the things of God. We are not perfect the way we are. But here, here's, here's what you got to hear. Um, by saying that, We're perfect just the way we are. We're trying to stitch a wound that only God can heal. We're we're trying to say to everyone around us, and honestly to God most of all, don't judge me. I don't need you. That's what we're saying when we we come to a point where we think, "I I I don't need to do anything with God because I'm perfect just the way I am. That is, that is not the biblical way to deal with life. It's not. Here's the truth. And we're going to look at this as we get into the text. The Bible teaches us that we can and will receive all of the love and affirmation and acceptance that we long for. But it's not because we're perfect. It's because Jesus was perfect for us. You gotta, you gotta get that. You have to get that. That we are accepted by God on the basis of another person's righteousness. The only righteous person who ever lived was God who became a person for us and lived a perfect life. And it's on the basis of his righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness that we can be accepted. That's what the Bible means by the word grace. It means that we actually receive the acceptance and love and 
And you know, all of this from God, even though we didn't deserve it at all. And that's what makes it amazing. That's why we can sing amazing grace. That's what that should draw us to. It's amazing grace because it's so undeserved. And so as we get into this text, here's what we're going to see in these three chapters. Um, Chapter 62 is probably the most encouraging chapter in the Old Testament, maybe in the Bible, aside from Romans 8. It is incredibly affirming. It is un- and if we pulled it out and isolated it from everything else in the context, we would pat ourselves on the back and go, I must be pretty darn good. God really is impressed with me. So we can't just look at that. We have to look at the total message here. And what we're going to see is that, yes, we are, we are loved by God. Chapter 62 will leave us with no question about that. But what makes it incredible that we're loved by God is because of chapter 63 and 64 which are going to show us that we are loved by all the things that chapter 62 says, despite the fact that we are so far from what we ought to be. And it's all really pointing us to the fact that we have a Savior who has come into the world to make us right with God himself. So uh, let's get into it. And we're going to read chapter 62. It's a pretty short chapter, about 12 verses. Um, and we won't read it all at once. We'll, we'll stop and talk a little bit as we go. But look at the first five verses with me. For one through five, we'll, we'll start here. It says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings will see your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Did you hear hear this? There's a couple of key words in this passage The whole passage is, by the way, speaking about a future day. Now, we know this day has been fulfilled in Christ. So from our vantage point, it's something that's already happened as we've turned to Jesus. These words apply to us. But in Isaiah's day, it was still a future day because Christ had not yet come into the world to, to bring about this glorious redemption. But here's what they're being told, and here's what we're being told. It's saying that we will be righteousness, and our righteousness in verse one, it says, will go forth as brightness and our salvation as a burning torch. Everyone in the darkness is gonna see the righteousness and the, 
and the uh, salvation that God has given to us. It's, it's bright, it's clear, it's glorious. God is going to show that off in his people. And, and then you get down to verse uh, 5, or verse, the end of verse 4, and then the end of verse 5. And there's two phrases I want us to hone in on. There's one little sentence here that says, for the Lord delights in you. The Lord, this is, we're talking about God, right? And God, it says, delights in you. And at the end of verse five, it says, your God rejoices over you. So, so I don't know how you, how you view God. A lot of times we interpret God through the lens of our own fathers, mothers, whatever parental figures we had. And honestly, all of us had imperfect parents, right? Uh, even if they were good parents. Some of you did not have good parents at all. And, and some of you had great parents, but they weren't perfect parents. And so a lot of times what we can, when we read about the Lord or we read about the Father in heaven, we think, well, if he's a father, then he must be like my father, and that wasn't great, or he did this or that. Um, and a lot of times we, we read, it, read our experience into God, but here's the thing. God is perfect, and, and everything he does is right. But what we're being told here is that he rejoices over his people. He delights in his people. What does that mean? It means that fundamentally God wants to be with you. He actually likes you. And I know that that's, it's, it's hard for us to believe that because we're such screw-ups. We make so many mistakes that you've probably made, made many of them as I have already today. And, and you look at this and you go, how can God delight over us? How can he rejoice over us? It doesn't make sense that we would have this affirmation and love and acceptance from a perfect God. We are so sinful and broken and messed up and we make so many stupid choices and all the rest, right? And yet we're told in the Bible that God rejoices and delights in us. This is why we can say that God actually likes his people. It's not just, of course he loves us, right? But, but you know, as I do, that you can say, oh, I love him, but I don't like that person. And that's okay, right? Because people have different personalities and you don't have to be best friends with everybody, but you do need to genuinely care about everybody or you should as God calls us to. But there are gonna be people that just don't, like connect with you and you're like, ah, I guess I have to love them, but they're kind of irritating. That's how we are as sinners. That's not how God is. Because if we're honest, if we truly assess ourselves, we'd probably go, I think I'm pretty irritating to God. Constantly asking him for his forgiveness all the time. <laughs> like constantly bugging him for things. Like, like a little two-year-old who wants a snack 30,000 times in a day. Right? We're constantly, right? but God doesn't say that that bothers him. In fact, Jesus tells us in one of his parables that, that God actually wants us to pester him until he relents. <laughs> he wants us to come to him. He wants us to bring our problems to him. He, wa- he, doesn't, 
He's not burdened by us at all. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. That should affirm you. there's, There's no one in the world that you need to impress because God is already pleased with you in every way. He's already perfectly pleased with you, not because you're perfect, but because you are in his son, Jesus. And so Jesus stands in your place. He clothes you in the righteousness that he possesses. And so when you stand before God in the faith that you should have in Christ, he doesn't see you as this filthy sinner who has to be pushed out, but as a loved, beloved son or daughter who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we need to recognize that. It's not because we're perfect just the way we are, but it's because Christ has showered us with love, acceptance, and his perfection. And again, that perfection hasn't caught up with us yet, right? Because we're still living in this in-between. We're still living in a world where we are, we are positionally perfect before the Father. We're righteous, we're justified. And yet our practical outworking of that isn't, isn't perfect, And that that won't happen until we see him face to face. The Apostle Paul tells us that, that when we see him, we will become like him. Um, That won't happen for a while for most of us, maybe for some of us sooner than others. But until that day comes, we're not perfect. And yet we are positionally, functionally, we're perfect before God as he looks at us. That That should just blow your mind. That God can look at such a screw-up like me and go, you know what? I don't have anything against him. He should have a lot of things against me, as he should with you. But that's not how God views us. That's why we can say, and why I'm constantly reminding you, that you are okay in Jesus. That's what it means to be okay in Jesus. That it doesn't mean that you don't have things to figure out or things to work on or ways to improve. You do, I do. That's true as long as we live in a broken world and as long as we're still in process. But positionally, we are right with God. We are rejoiced over. We are delighted in and for some of you, that's a whole new category. Because for some of you, your dads, and maybe even your moms, just didn't want you around. You were a bother, or you felt that you were. There's wounds that are carried in those things, and I'm not trying to like make you feel terrible. I'm just saying that God doesn't view it that way. God will never be annoyed at you. He will never be bothered that you come to him. He will always receive you with joy with delight. And that's amazing. The rest of chapter 62 basically becomes a call to his people to to say, hey, you got to tell people about this. You got to say that this is true. You need to let people know. Look at verse six through nine. It says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. Watchmen, we don't really have watchmen today, but In a walled city of antiquity, you had people whose job it was to stay up all night. And I guess we do in a sense with our military surveilling our borders, right? But in a a walled city, you would have people that you potentially would know and be related to even that were there to watch out for trouble. Well, what God says is he set these watchmen all day and all night and they shall never be silent 
You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. God's inviting us to drink wine in the sanctuary. So come prepared next week. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, but that's, that's what it's saying. It, it, wine and grain were symbols and in reality, celebratory things, right? And so, so you have this reality. He's put watchmen in place. And what are they, what are they doing? They're, they're there to proclaim day and night that God has care for us. He's going to protect us. He's going to guard us. He's going to take all of this out of our enemy's hands and he's going to provide for us. And then he goes even further in verse 10 through 12 and it turns away from just these specific watchmen who are there to proclaim this this safety in, in Christ, but it goes to every one of us and says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken." So now we go even beyond this and we, it's not just the watchmen, it's all of us have a calling to, to clear the path for more people to hear about this love and acceptance and redemption from Christ. He says we, we need to build up the highways, we need to clear the stones, get rid of anything that will prevent people from coming. Raise the banner, raise the signals, tell people that there's this salvation that's coming, that, that they can get in on this. And then he says this, at the end of verse 12, he says, you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Again, just affirming and reaffirming here that we are actually pursued by God. We're called sought out, right? If somebody is, if we're sought out, that means someone is looking for us. And God is the one who is in pursuit of his people. He loves you. He's chasing after you. He's coming to save you. If you receive him, you'll have the salvation he offers you. Now that's, that's all the good news. Chapter 62 is nothing but encouraging. But we need to balance this, right? We need the balancing because otherwise we can get, get it into our heads that, you know, I guess I'm just perfect the way I am. And that's just not true. Look at verse uh, 1 of 63. Uh, really one, um, yeah, verse 1 through 6. It's going to take a real dramatic shift here, okay? It's like a stark shift. Here's what it says. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. 
Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. And I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That is quite a different message than chapter 62. This is crazy. Um, Because what this is describing is the day of God's vengeance on sinners. And if you read this, you're going, that's really gruesome. Like, it's talking about how his apparel is red, stained red by blood that he's trampling on people and spattering their blood. That is sickening, right? It's like, whoa, what in the world is happening here? What is going on? Well, this is what makes the whole thing about God's grace incredible. It's that we actually deserve, we deserve to die. But that's not what we get. We deserve to be trampled to death by God's anger. That's what we deserve. And that's a, that's a pill we don't want to swallow, right? We do not want to take that. We don't want to believe that. But that's not the whole message of the Bible. It is in the Bible, though. It's in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages, that is what we've earned for sin, is death. That's what death deserve, uh, sin deserves. It deserves death. It, that's, what, that's what we've earned from our sinfulness. So what, what God is describing here in very gruesome detail in, in chapter 63 is the implication of sin and what happens when we go uh, undealt with. That's, that would be the outcome of our lives. Not a pleasant picture. But what's going to happen here is we're going to read in chapter 63 and 64 and we're going to see this oscillating picture. We're going to see an oscillation between God's judgment on our sin and his mercy. So God isn't just going to be lopsided here. He's going to be very, very um, fair and, and balanced and he's going to give us the gospel in all of this. Because what we're seeing in the first half of 63 is, is brutal, and we don't want to deal with that. But then you get into the next verse, and chapter 7 through, uh, verse 7 through 14, the remainder, or the majority of the rest of the chapter, doesn't talk about this. And in fact, it's going to take us to the gospel, the good news, that yes, we deserve to be trampled, but that's not what we get. Look at what it says. It says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house to the house of Israel, that he had, has granted them according to his compassion, according to his abund- the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely and 
he became their savior. So what they should have received, he saves them from. He saves them from his own wrath. It says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Did you hear that? That's the gospel. That's literally what Jesus did. In all of our affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So there we see, again, this reminder that what we deserve is death, what we get is grace. And that's the second half of Romans 6, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but, here's the good news, the free gift, that word free gift, that's an English translation of a Greek word, and the Greek word that is translated free gift is the same Greek word that we translate grace. Grace is free. It's not conditional. It's not, it's not earned by us. It's a free gift, but it's grace. It's all kindness. It's all undeserved kindness. So the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6, 23. We're seeing this here, right? We deserve it. We deserve to die. We've earned that. But what we get is grace. And grace comes with eternal life. As we keep reading, we're going to oscillate back to the problem in case you forgot. Uh, It says, but they rebelled. That's us, right? We rebelled. And And grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. Then we're oscillating back in verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters from before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Again, we're oscillating back and forth, right? We're being reminded we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We're rebellious. We're really not the heroes of this story. But God, in his mercy, grace, compassion, pity for us, says he looks at us and goes, they deserve to experience the death of of, uh, their sin, and yet... I'm going to give them life and protection and grace. This is really uh, an important thing. I mean, this is the whole Christian life in front of us. It's what Paul says in Romans 5, 8 through 10. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified. That, that, that word means made right with God, right? That we're put into a position where God looks at us and goes, you're, you're righteous. I don't have anything against you. I have nothing to hold against you. That's what justified means. We've been justified by Jesus' blood, by his death. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
We're going to be saved by God from God. That's what it's saying. For we were enemies. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, there's, there's a key component here, right? There's our undeserving nature as sinners and God's mercy and grace towards those undeserving sinners. That's, that's where we're at. Now the question is, what we've got to wrestle with and where the text takes us next is how do we, how do we get there? How, how do we actually see the grace of God applied to our lives? And what happens in verse 15 through all of 64 is a prayer. It transitions. It's, it's not God speaking to us. It's actually Isaiah's people praying and, and one that we need to look at and recognize that this is how we get to grace. We plead for mercy. We, we acknowledge that we need it. And we know that the way to this acceptance and love that our hearts so desperately long for, the way to get there is by acknowledging that we're needy people, that we're sinners and deserving of judgment, and yet what God gives us is grace. And so we got to recognize it's not inherent goodness, it's given, received goodness. And that's where we go. There's a prayer in this text, and let's read it. It says, look down from heaven. We're asking God to look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? He doesn't, by the way. That's, this, is, uh, this is us being stupid, even in our prayers. I actually love that. I love that that's there. Because even though this is the, this is the perfect holy word of God, there's no mistakes in it at all. It's inspired by God. But, but there are realities in which people say really wrong things. And God shows grace to that too. They're blaming God for their wandering. And, and he says, and you've hardened our hearts so that we fear you not. That's, you know, there's, there's, there's problems in this, right? But then he goes, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have not, never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. For, for of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry 
and we send. So here they're finally getting to some acknowledgement of their own sin. In our sin, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of your iniquity. Now again, they're kind of going back to the, the blame game for God here too. But, but at least they're acknowledging their sin. They're getting there. They're getting to this point, right? And now in verse 8, it transitions and, and it starts to actually become a, a good prayer. It says, but, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Now, here's what they're saying. This is where we need to recognize it. Um, the turning point for us in our walk with Christ is when we acknowledge that we are nothing in this equation and God is everything. He said, they say here, we are clay, you're the potter. You are, we are just the work of your hands, right? God, do whatever you want with us. Take us and make us yours. When we give our hearts to the sovereign God of the universe who actually has the power to form us into what he wants us, that's when everything turns. You gotta recognize this. You can't form yourself into what you should be. Only the potter who has the clay and can do with it what he wants, only he has the power to change us. Acknowledging our sovereign God's power to save us is the thing we must do. And as we get there, we beg him for his mercy. We beg him not to be angry at us even though we deserve it. And we ask him to make our whole situation change. Right now, they historically, they were dealing with literally desolate cities countries from surrounding nations coming in, armies coming in and destroying them. They're literally praying for God to help them rebuild their lives. But we have to recognize that we are just as ruined, just as ruined. We're, we may not be seeing the buildings around us ruined, but we see our hearts are. And we need to beg the Lord to change our hearts. Again, the human heart is what drives everything we do. It's, it's our causal core is what uh, Paul Tripp says. As if you were in the marriage class, that's what he talks about. That it's the causal core. It's what makes us do what we do. It's our hearts. And if our hearts are not changed by the grace of God, then we won't be changed. And so we need to recognize that we, we have to surrender to him. Surrender to his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and let him work in us. Let him do with us what he wants. And what he wants to do is forgive. What he wants to do is extend grace. That's what he wants. And he just wants us to come to him. And so that's where we've got to go. We've got to get that, to that point. If you've never gotten to that point, you need to get there.
If you have, guess what? You still need to keep getting yourself back there because we're constantly being pulled away from the trust in our sovereign God to try to form for ourselves what we need. We got to stop putting our trust in ourselves whether that be our initial step into the Christian faith or whether that be the ongoing walk with Christ that we have once we're in the Christian faith, we have to surrender ourselves to a God who loves us and has good intentions for us and will use us how he wants. And and that's where we gotta go. We plead for his help. All the while remembering this, that we are not forsaken because Jesus was forsaken. We are not condemned because Jesus was condemned. We are not abandoned because Jesus was abandoned by the Father. And so the, the only one who was truly forsaken, truly condemned, truly abandoned was Jesus Christ upon the cross. He was raised to life on the third day. Today he sits on the throne of grace for all of us to fall before him and receive the help and mercy and acceptance that, we, that our hearts long for. If we don't look to Jesus for all the things that we, are, that, that we need in our hearts, then we're looking in all the wrong places. We have a God who was forsaken so that we would never be. And, and that's what drives us to him for mercy. It is only that that drives us to him for mercy, is that he has nothing but grace for us as we come to him. He literally sits on the throne of grace for those who are in his son. It's not a throne of judgment for us if we've trusted in Jesus. It will be a throne of judgment if we refuse to come to him. But if we come to him, there is nothing but grace for us. And we get to rest in that today. So with that said, I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll take some time today to remember that grace. That's what the table that we, we have here, the tables with the communion elements, that's what it's meant to do. We, we do this not as just a routine or a ritual, but as a reminder of the throne of grace that Jesus sits on because he died for us. He was forsaken for us. He was condemned for us. He was abandoned on the cross for us. And that as we go to the table and eat the bread and drink the cup, are reminded of his death and we proclaim it until he comes, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We, we go to that table to proclaim to our hearts and to those around us that Jesus has died for our sins and he's raised for our salvation. And let's celebrate in that. So we'll invite you to do that as we, as we sing. You're welcome to get up and partake of that. Um, and then we'll, we'll conclude our service. There's also, by the way, uh, boxes next to each of those tables. If you've come with tithes or gifts, you can drop those in there as well, just as a, as a way to remind you of that. So let's pray, and then we'll worship. Um, Father, thank you for giving us the grace we don't deserve, and that you've, you've allowed us to be accepted by you because you were rejected for us. Lord, help that truth to rest in our hearts. May it turn our hearts towards you. Father, help us. We need it and we beg you to work in our lives today and we pray we wouldn't just let this go in one ear and out the other, but that we would rest and live and give all of our lives to this grace that you have given to us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.